I'd like you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verses 14 down through verse 33. For the last few weeks we have been uh, having a discussion about the topic of temptation and how prevalent and common it is in the Christian experience. I believe 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 makes it very clear that each one of us will experience encounters with trials that test the strength of our faith and with temptations that seek to solicit us to evil. Beginning of verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you, which indicates, I believe, a likelihood of facing temptation. I think it gets stronger in the middle of verse 13 where it says, But when you are tempted, He, God, will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I believe this passage of Scripture is clearly indicating to every Christian that we are in the midst of a battle to fight for holiness and for the glory of God in the context of our Christian experience. Over the last few weeks, we looked at the nature of those temptations and we talked about the fact that they are common to man and that they are ultimately conquerable in the strength that God provides for us and the fact that they are modified or managed by God so that we are not overcome by them. This morning I want us to look at the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 14, going down through verse 43, in a passage that I believe is essentially laying out passions and priorities that if we elevate them in our lives, they will help us to escape from temptation without falling. Because that ultimately for every Christian is the goal, that we would face temptations and escape them in a way that retains glory and honor for the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, what I want to look at is four choices that we can make on a regular basis that will help us to escape the temptations that come in our direction on a regular basis. I want to begin reading in verse 14 down through verse 22. Paul says, Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. And I think that's the first hint at how we escape through the God-given path temptations that we face. Flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. That is, people that should know better. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the offer? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants, and here's that word again, this participation with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons also. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Now Paul's laying out a very interesting argument that begins with a commandment, flee idolatry. Flee from idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is any object or passion that enslaves me and that minimizes or weakens my love for my Savior Jesus Christ. Idolatry is any passion, any habit, any appetite that once I cut it loose, 
in a way that dishonors God, it ultimately enslaves me and pulls me away from fidelity and loyalty to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's response to all idolatry is this. Flee from it. Verse 14. Therefore, my dear brothers, in light of the escape that God has given so you can stand up under temptation without failing, when you face a sinful temptation, run from it. So my first thought this morning is this. The first choice that I need to make on a daily basis. Choose to maintain a safe distance from sin. Okay, choose to maintain a safe distance from sin. That is a choice that we as believers need to make on a daily basis if we are going to effectively fight against the temptations that seek to pull us away from loyalty to Jesus Christ. The way that the message puts this verse is this. It says, get out of their company as fast as you can. Get out of settings in which sin may happen as fast as you possibly can. There's a danger in flirting with sin, in thinking that I can get close to it, but it won't. It affects others, but it won't affect me. Kind of a, a spiritual pride that though others may be weak in those settings, I'm strong and therefore I'm okay there. In the church in Corinth, we know that the discussion is about meat offered to idols. That began a few chapters ago. In this context, Paul is going to address directly the temptation to idolatry, which be tantamount to participating in demon worship. And what he's going to say is, do I mean that a sacrifice, in verse 19, is offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? He says no. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. That is, that the worship that was taking place in Corinth had some connection through a demonic angle to the work of Satan. Christians were being tempted to do this. They lived in Corinth. Their friends were having a feast at an idol's temple. Some of the believers were thinking themselves strong enough that they could go into the idol's temple, eat a meal there, and be unaffected by the demonic influence or presence that surrounded temple worship in the pagan times. They had kind of arrived spiritually and were strong enough to deal with that kind of setting in their mind. And Paul's retort to them is, you need to flee from idolatry. Don't flirt with it. Don't play with it. And the basic principle I think that begins to emerge is, out of verses 16 and 17, when you sit down at the Lord's table, as we will do today, what are you doing? What Paul's saying is, when we partake of these elements, we're participating in the work of Christ, fellowshipping with the work of Christ, and here's what was happening. Some were, on Sunday, enjoying the Lord's table. But on Tuesday, you might find them down at a pagan's temple, eating meat in a pagan, idol-worshiping context. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, you can't have it both ways. Isn't the eating in the temple a participation with the demon that is present there? Aren't you living so close to sin, thinking yourself immune, that you're really living in contradiction to the fellowship that you have, the participation you have with the body of Christ on Sunday morning? So he's offering to them a strong challenge. Keep a safe distance between yourself and sin. This past summer, my family and I visited the Grand Canyon. And I was shocked to find out that on an annual basis, 12 people die as tourists in the Grand Canyon on an annual basis. Now, I can tell you something. There are some very serious cliffs in the Grand Canyon. 
I get near that kind of stuff, I, my knees, I don't know if any of you get this, I get a sensation that starts in my feet and comes right up through my knees when I get near an edge. A steep fall-off point. Well, when I was at the Grand Canyon, I, I wasn't overly tempted to flirt with the edge. Twelve times a year, people knowing that a fall will cost them their life flirt with the edge at the Grand Canyon. Twelve times a year, people die in that place on average. Why? Because they don't understand the danger? No. Most of the material that lines the ridge of the Grand Canyon is called limestone. Tends to erode, gets cracks that you can't really see. People want to, you know, that interesting picture, the stupid picture, and they go out and stand on the edge. Twelve times a year, somebody flirts with the edge of the Grand Canyon and it costs them their life. You know what Paul's saying to the church? Don't play with sin. Don't, don't flirt with the edge and think that, you know what, I'm strong enough, I'm capable enough, my evaluation is good enough, that I can deal with this in my life and it won't affect me. Paul's saying, look, when it comes to sin, God's way out is just flee from it. He gives you a, the capacity and a way to work away from it and to maintain a life that glorifies Him. He says to his son Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, Timothy, flee from immorality. Stay away from it. Don't flirt at the edge of it. Friends, this morning, in terms of our entertainment, in terms of our perspective of our possessions, of our relationship with our, our money, our relationships with people of the opposite sex, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, maintain a safe distance from sin. And verse 23, or 22 then becomes a shocking statement. He, he says, let's look back into verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord... And the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons also. What is he saying? He's saying as Christians, we can't have it both ways. I can't enjoy the manifest presence of, my, of God in my life, His powerful presence, while tolerating a proximity to sin in my personal life. I can't do it. And then Paul asks a shocking question. Because obviously some in Corinth were coming on Sunday morning for communion, and then on Tuesday they're over at the pagan festival. He says to them this question, verse 22, Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? The picture is, can, can you do that and experience the blessing of God? Or are you not setting yourself up for the judgment of God in your life? So dear friend, this morning, if you want to experience the joy of God's escape out of temptation, the first thing you need to do is choose to keep a safe distance between yourself and sin. Remember that everywhere you go, Jesus Christ goes with you. It's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? I'm never alone, ever. Even though I'm alone. <laughs> we can have the feeling at times that, well, okay, I'm alone. I can indulge in this or that. What is Paul saying? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have from God? You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So folks, if you're going to enjoy God's escape route from sin, the first thing you need to do is make a decision to keep a safe distance between yourself and sin. Verse 23. Paul anticipates their response here. 
He says everything is permissible. Yes, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible. This is the response. All things are created by God, therefore they're for our benefit and pleasure. Paul says, yes, yes, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. And then this statement, no one should seek his own good, but the good of others. No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. What is the basic thrust of that statement? I think it's something like this, and this is number two. Choose the growth and good of others over personal gratification and pleasure. Now that goes completely contrary to my flesh. In every circumstance, decide what will be best for those around you, what will encourage them and cause them to grow, rather than what you personally want to enjoy. Choose the good of others, the edification, the building up of others, over personal gratification. That is a hard choice for you and I to make. Verse 24, he says, No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. Verse 25, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So what is he saying? If you go to a meal and meat is being uh, given, you don't have to run the idle test on it. You can partake of it. No crime, no foul. Just eat the meat. But, verse 27, he says, If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But, if anyone says to you, this meat was offered to idols. Okay, what are they doing? Raise the flag of conscience. Okay, so you're sitting at the meal, the meal's being served, either a newer believer or an unbeliever whispers in your ear, This was offered in sacrifice. He says, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. So what prohibition comes into the expression of freedom in the Christian life? It is a concern for the growth and edification of those around me. It's not always, what do I like? What do I prefer? One of the questions I have to be asking in my life is, how is my life, how are my decisions impacting those around me? Am I adding to their life or am I stealing value from their spiritual life? What are the impacts of my decisions? Choose growth and the good of others over personal gratification. So, if they lay before you a beautiful 16-ounce New York strip steak and you're just thinking, this is mine And they say, oh, by the way, we bought this at the temple after sacrifice. Paul says, say, you know what? I'm sorry, I can't eat that today. Why? Because they've raised a question of conscience that will cause guilt to come in the heart and could potentially offend or cause an unbeliever to think that their lifestyle is okay. What is Paul saying? We don't live in isolation. Every person in this room lives an observed life. Your life is making a difference for somebody else, believer or unbeliever. They're watching to see if you're the real deal. If Jesus Christ has deeply affected your life. And whether His love is beginning to impact the decisions that you make on a daily basis. What is Paul basically saying? I think Paul is basically saying this. Be like Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, didn't grasp at that, but He emptied Himself and came to serve us. He says that's the attitude that we should have. Now, This idea of choosing the growth 
and good of others over personal gratification runs contrary to human nature, does it not? I was at a, a golf outing two weeks ago at, with a friend of mine. Uh, Pete LaLoya took us for free to the Teen Challenge golf outing. Somehow, our team won second place. I have no idea how, but somehow we won second place. What that meant was, I had no idea this would happen, they gave all three of us on our team a $50 gift certificate to get down to the pro shop and buy whatever you wanted. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm spending my own money, for some reason it's like easier to make those decisions, we're walking around that store with this $50 gift certificate trying to figure out what are you in the spur, you got 10 minutes to make the decision and get back for dinner. And I'm trying to think, well, I don't know why, I have no idea what I want. So all of a sudden my eyes fall on two hats. They're uh, nice hats. What's that brand? New Era, right? New Era hats. I've, apparently, the young people, they know what that means. I didn't know what that meant. I pick up two hats. They had a Phillies hat that says Titleist across the front. It's got a beautiful Phillies logo. I'm from Philadelphia area. And the Phillies are, no doubt, probably the hottest team in Major League Baseball today. Okay? My opinion. Okay? <laughs> but I think I'm right on that, too. I get this beautiful Titleist hat with the Phillies logo on. And a, I'm a fan, but I have not watched a game this year, okay? But I'm excited about pride for the home team, okay? I also get a Nittany Lions hat, and I get that Nittany Lions hat thinking, Dan Slack will love this hat. He is like insane over the Nittany Lions. I get into the dinner where they're serving the free meal that we're so blessed with at this country club, eating the meal, and this guy named Dan gets up to share his testimony about how God has just changed his life and just, just the joy of the Lord. And I just thought, you know, what a blessing to see this guy share his testimony about how God has delivered him from a life of habitual enslaving sin. God has shown him a way out. He's walking by me after he's done giving a speech and we're clapping, just so grateful. Anything we could do for you, we would. And he looks at my hat. <laughs> my Phillies hat. <clears throat> the one I plan to keep. He said, oh, that is a neat hat. Yeah? <laughs> and he says, I kid you not, he says, I was looking at that in the pro shop thinking that would be a really nice hat that. He, he was just saying, he was happy for me that I got it. And also the Lord's saying to me, uh, you know what you need to do? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I, I love the hat. That was nice. And just, I was so convicted. I was like... You didn't earn this. You're at an outing that was free. You have played at one of the most beautiful courses in Franklin Lakes. You're eating a beautiful meal. My selfish instincts were so strong in that setting. I'm thinking, no, no. <laughs> Finally, I gave him the hat, but I did not give Dan Slack the Penn State hat. Okay, <laughs> <clears throat> just to prove that my flesh is intact. Okay, <laughs> and got Dan by the end of the service. You may have a Penn State hat. Okay. We'll see if this uh, valuing the growth and good of others over personal gratification really is true. In your choices, do you, think about this, in your choices, do you seek the good of others? Do you seek what will build them up and edify them? I don't know where I was recently. Somebody asked this question. What changes have you made in your life to help someone else out? Can you sitting where you're sitting this morning, say, Pastor Tim, in my heart, I can say before God, this is an adjustment that I made in my life this week 
to help someone else. I mean, I altered my plans in my life to help someone else become what God wants them to be. Because folks, that's the tenor of Scripture for Christians. They're always making choices that defer personal gratification so that a brother or sister in Christ will move further along in their relationship with God. In Corinth, what they were saying is this, if I'm going to meet at the idol temple, I'm going to do it and I don't care. You know what Paul says to them? You're fighting with God. You're not picking a fight with me. You're picking a fight with God. And he is jealous of his position in your life. And you cannot, notice the impossibility, you cannot choose personal gratification and at the same time sacrificially live to please God. You can't do both. It's like the way Jesus says it in the Gospels. You cannot serve God and mammon. He's not saying don't. He's saying it's utterly impossible. I can't love myself, I can't love my hat and love the hand. You see, I can't, you can't do it both ways. I can't choose selfish behavior because it's what I like to do and at the same time have disregard. At the same time, I'm sorry, love Jesus Christ like I should. I can't do both. Paul's saying is if you're going to follow God, you're going to take his way out. You need to choose the growth and good of others over personal gratification. Number three, this brings us down to verse 31. Paul says, so that whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The third thought that helps us in avoiding solicitations to evil is this. Choose the glory of God in all things over personal pleasure. Choose to honor God in all things over personal pleasure. This is one of the most wonderful central verses in the Bible in terms of what is worship. Worship is deferring personal gratification so that God may assume His proper position in your life. Worship is being so enthralled with who God is that the world around us sees a church that is deeply satisfied with God and it attracts them to want to know Him personally as their Lord and Savior. The Westminster Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to love God and to enjoy Him forever. The acid test of every decision that we as Christians make in regard to entertainment, in regard to relationships, in, regard, in regards to every area of our life, the acid test is in this choice, can I worship? Can I add value to God and His presence in my life? Can I glorify Him? Can I make Him large in this situation? Because we, ladies and gentlemen, exist for the glory of God. And God-given, or I'm sorry, God-glorifying decisions are a choice that we need to learn to make on a regular basis in my life. God-glorifying choices don't happen by chance. They don't happen by mistake. They don't happen naturally. I naturally will choose myself. If I'm going to glorify God, I need to confront my personal self-centeredness on a daily basis and say, what changes need to be made in my life today so that God can be glorified in and through my life? Ask yourself this question. Do I drive my car for the glory of God? Try a different one. Do I address my mate 
to the glory of God when provoked. When provoked. Do I respond to my kids to the glory of God when I'm upset and perturbed with them? Or when they've wrecked the car? Ask yourself this question. Do I talk on my phone to the glory of God? Meaning, would I be embarrassed if I found out that somebody else was listening in on the phone? Am I doing everything that I do for the glory of God? Do I evaluate my entertainment in terms of this? Does this glorify God? Or does this gratify my flesh? Because I can't have it both ways. Please note that the test here is not, do I enjoy it? There are a lot of things that you and I may enjoy that do not glorify God. And that do not help to deliver us from sinful patterns and tendencies in our lives. So Paul says, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatever. So what is he doing? He's looking at this issue of Sunday eating at the Lord's table, Tuesday eating at temple, in a way that is God-denying and God-belittling. And he's saying, this is in, in, in contradiction. Instead of doing that, instead of living this, this, this uh, polarized life, live a life that glorifies God, that focuses on the cross work of Jesus Christ. So that, verse 32 through 33 can become true in our lives. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why, Paul? Notice what he says. So that they may be saved. Folks, what... What decisions have I made in my life recently that were directed towards evangelizing someone that doesn't know Christ? That was directed towards allowing them to see a self-denying, Christ-glorifying life so that they could hear the Gospel of Christ? When, when do I make the adjustments? When do I tweak the use of my free time? Or my lunch schedule at work so that I can express the love of God to a friend or a co-worker? Do I modify my life? Do I sacrifice personal plans so that they may hear about Christ? And Paul says with this end, so that they may be saved. That's Paul's driving passion. The last choice that we need to make is to choose the evangelism of those without Christ over my personal plans. Will how I am living my life help to advance the cause of Christ? Will it help to lift Jesus Christ up? That is Paul's driving concern and passion. So this morning, ask yourself this question. Am I keeping a close or a safe distance from sin? Am I choosing the greater good of others over personal gratification? Am I choosing the glory of God in all things over personal pleasure? Am I choosing the evangelism of the lost instead of personal plans? And what that means is, and there's a bit of a progression, I move towards holiness, I start living in a way that is sensitive to the needs of others, and that glorifies God, and bam, what happens? People in my life start to hear about Christ, and start to come to know Him. It sounds a little bit like what Peter says later in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from sinful desires. Does that sound familiar? 
Flee from it. Keep a safe distance between yourself and sin. Why? They war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Don't compromise with them, but live such a good life among them so that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, ever had that happen? You're trying to live the right kind of a life and people around you are picking at your life, pointing at every flaw in your life, and you're thinking, I'm making no difference. Stay the course, because here's what Peter says. They may accuse you for wrongdoing, but they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God on the day when He visits us. They will glorify God on the day that He visits us. I think Peter's clear indication is this. Their life will be so affected by your decision to follow Christ, to be selfless, to glorify God, so much that your life becomes an evangelistic tool in the hand of the Savior Himself. May God help us to live with the goal in life that Paul lays out, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Notice what he says. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Folks, what would this church be like if everyone in this church was following you? If everyone took their lead from you? And I know here's what most of you are thinking. God didn't call me to be the pastor. But He did call you to be an example. He calls you to follow those who follow Christ because there are people observing your life. Every mom and dad in this room, there are people watching your life. There are no unobserved lives in this room. There are no lives that are unimportant in this room. And what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, inasmuch as I am faithfully following Christ, come behind me. But if you see me out of step with Christ, don't do what I do. He's not exalting himself to the position of Christ. What he's saying is, every life that's lived is able to make a difference, to have an impact in the life of others for the glory of God. Folks, I don't know about you. That brings profound purpose to our lives. No matter what you do for a living, somebody's watching your life. If you're a homemaker, your children are watching your life. Your friends are watching your life to see if the Savior you profess makes a difference. Gentlemen in your office, people are watching. I hope they know you're a Christian. And I hope they won't be surprised to find out that you are one. Ladies in your job, whatever it may be, somebody's watching your life. And you have to make very careful choices, escaping sin, so that your life can be the light that God intended for it to be. Ultimately a light that is exposing the glory of the cross of Christ that we sung about so beautifully this morning to a world that desperately needs to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we bow our heads in prayer together this morning? Father.